This program is a proud member of Univaz. Unified. Unique. Voices. Learn more at univazpods.net. Hello. My name's Patrick, and I'm a Scream Queen. I'm a Scream Queen. And so are you! To another episode of Scream Queens, the podcast where horror gets gay. This is episode 224, and tonight, no, I'm not back from hiatus, but you are getting a peek behind the Patreon curtain because you are getting an episode that went up this past December. Yep. It's the return of the Nightmare Closet, where I relive my childhood trauma for your entertainment. And we are looking at the 1972 movie that scared me so bad, I didn't watch it again for another, I don't know, 40 years. Silent Night, Bloody Night. No, no, not the one with the killer Santa. No, 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 no. This one is completely different. Okay, before we go any further... Please allow me to introduce myself. My name is Patrick Walsh, and normally, twice a month, I am here being your guide to the weird and wonderful world of horror movies, but you have to see them through my very, very gay little eyes. I'm on break right now because there's some stuff going on. We're supposed to be retooling the show, and we have some things to talk about before the show gets going, and not all of them are good. First of all, in the last episode, I mentioned that the site is moving to a company called Podcast Websites, and it's going to be super groovy and great. Well, guess what? That's not happening. There is a problem, a tech problem with our previous hosting company, and it's really complicated, and actually, I'm not allowed to talk about it. I was advised by Mr. Brad to not talk about it in too much detail or start naming names because they might make things more difficult. Let's just say this show is in lockdown, as is its contents and its URL. So if I fuck this up, I lose the URL and all of my subscribers, and I have to start over from scratch. We don't want that, do we? No, we don't. No, we don't. So the only person who can fix this with the tech savvy and actually with the security clearance to do so is Mr. Brad. And here comes the other bit. And... I'm going to ask all of you to keep Mr. Brad in your thoughts, your thoughts, and in your prayers this week. He's been having cardiac problems. He was diagnosed with some severe cardiac problems a few weeks ago. Uh, he's been going for tests. The results have not been good. They're talking about putting a stint in him as early as Friday. So by the time you're getting this, this might be happening while you're listening to this. That he might be in, you know, surgery. So just keep them there because um, the future of the show is kind of hinging on him right now. And this put me in a really bad mental place for a while. But here's the thing. I have to take my own advice. I'm keeping my chin up and I'm keeping my fists swinging because one thing that Scream Queens do not do is stop fighting ever. Fight or flight, survive the night, make it to the final reel, baby. There's no way to make it to the final reel unless you put up a goddamn fight. And that's what I'm doing. Here's the thing. I said the show was going to relaunch on September 14th or whatever it was with a brand new site and a brand new look and a brand new logo. Well, I don't know if that's happening, but the show will definitely be back in full on September the 14th, or whatever date I had said, the, the, the second Friday in September. Because after much depression and anger and yelling at the clouds, I realized the site design, as it is, has served me perfectly well for eight years now, right? If I have to keep it for a while longer to keep the show going, then so be it. A new web, di- web design would be fantastic right now. But if it's a choice between that or having a show at all, 
I'm choosing the show. I'm choosing you and the show over something that's basically just a vanity plug. So that's where we are right now. So whew, it's hard to even talk about all this. It's just been it's been very upsetting and very sad, especially with Mr. Brad being sick on top of all of this. It's um, you know, because you know, we have a long, complicated history, but at the end of it, he is my best friend. He knows me better than anybody. He knows me at my worst. He knows me at my best. And the same goes towards him. And yet we still are able to deal with each other in a normal manner. And so it's just keep him close and um, wish him the best. What's going on here? For those of you who are new to podcasting or the show in general, what's this Patreon business? Okay, Patreon is a way to support the show and a whole bunch of artists in general. It was set up for artists of all kinds, not just podcasters, but musicians and people who do web shows and filmmakers and painters and sculptors as a way to get in touch with the people that are fans of theirs and have those fans step up and say, I support you so much that I'm going to make a regular donation every month to help you through, to help pay some of your finances and help you finance your next project. So in return, you get bonus content. So you could, you could pledge a dollar a month, $5 a month, $10 a month, and you will get a video newsletter. You will get bonus episodes. You will get invitations to exclusive events and things like that. And like I said, it's a great way to support the show, and especially during times like this, because it looks like I might have to hire a lawyer to deal with some of this. So this might get really pricey really quickly. So anything that you can do to help would be great. Another thing to do is just to go over to the site. If you don't want to become a patron, because I know other people have said, my God, if I was a patron of all of my podcasts, I wind up giving you each dollar and that's not going to help much. I'm giving like $500 to 500 podcasts. I get that. A one-time donation is also totally cool. You can go to the website, hit the PayPal button and do that that way. Or if you don't have the money, which is totally cool. Or you don't want to spend the money. That's totally fine. Times are rough. They're spending it on superfluous things. The easiest thing you can do to help out the show and also lots of other independent podcasts is to go and download the Radio Public app. It's available on Apple. It's available on Android. And it was designed by podcasters for podcasters to help the little guys get some money back because we do a hell of a lot of work. I'm not tooting my own horn here, but podcasting is a lot of hard work and it's not just the sexy recording stuff. There's all the behind the scenes stuff that is gross and time consuming, but we do it because we love it. And an easy way for you to give back is to download that app and just listen to your shows because for every show that you listen to through Radio Public that is signed up with Radio Public, we get a little bit of cash. Yeah, that's all you got to do. All you got to do is download the app and listen. And the app works really well. It's clean. It's got great reviews. And it's a perfect way to help support your show without spending – your favorite shows, rather, without spending a dime. So that much said. Before we go any further, I just do want to warn you that this Patreon episode was recorded during the dark days of the crappy laptop. And I remember struggling with this episode because there's a hum – when I talk and I tried to fix it and the more I tried to fix it the worse it got I know how to fix it now but there's nothing I could do to the file now that's not going to make it just even more annoying so please excuse the hum when I talk just pretend it's my sexiness buzzing through or perhaps I got a vibrator or something shut up no I don't hey okay wait oh oh, god damn it we are now going to go turn back the clock to this past December the winter winds are blowing. The snow is piling up outside. Thump, 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 thump. Those are very big snowflakes. Thump, 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 thump. Santa's sleigh is jingling. Jing, 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 jing. The reindeer's hoofs are clomping. Clomp, 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 clomp. And, oh, by the way, there's a murderer in the house. Wait, what? What? Oh, yeah, because did I mention it's not Christmas? It's Silent Night, Bloody Night, brought to you in its entirety. Be sure to hang out afterwards for some podcast recommendations and enjoy your journey into the nightmare closet. (laughs) 
Hello again, my beautiful Patreon subscribers, and welcome to another episode of The Final Reel, Holiday Edition. Jingle bells, jingle bells, we're all gonna die someday, but not today. Hopefully, that would be terrible. Not until you finish the show. So, as I said in my video, my video newsletter, that from now on, things like the crab suit and... Why the fuck isn't this on DVD? And tonight's feature, The Nightmare Closet, are now going to be Patreon-exclusive features. Cha-ching to all of you. And that's not the only thing. I have been working with a sort of a podcast manager, and I'm learning how to get the most out of Patreon and also for my patrons. So we're going to be adding a whole lot of new features and a whole lot of new levels of subscribing. So keep your eyes open. Nobody's going to lose anything. Everything is going to stay the same. You're, oh, you're going to get the same benefits that you do now, but you're just going to get Mo and also Mo options. And also good news today is that some of you might have heard that Patreon was planning on changing their fee structure, which meant that they're like, oh, we're going to make more money for the creators. That's me. By charging the patrons more. That's you. They were going to be charging an additional 5% and plus 35% on every pledge that you make. And for some of you that subscribe to a whole lot of shows, that wasn't going to work at all. So fuck that. But it turns out today that Patreon has said, you know what? That was a really bad idea. Sorry. Sorry. So everything is still cool. So hopefully – well, clearly, if you're listening this to this, you didn't run away. I don't think I lost many people, but I know a lot of podcasts out there lost a hell of a lot of subscribers really fast. So thank all of you who are listening to this right now for hanging in there. Your patience has been rewarded. So – Without any further ado, let us go back eh, to maybe 1977 to a small little house in Floral Park, Long Island, where I, Patrick Walsh, your host, at the wee age of seven, maybe eight, was watching TV. Probably on a Saturday afternoon. I know it was during the day. I was by myself and I was upstairs on the second floor of the house. Because my dad was watching golf downstairs and let's face it, fuck that. Oh no. Oh no, no. And Saturday afternoon, there was always some kind of monster movie on. But on this day, it was not a monster movie. It was the movie we're going to talk about today. And this movie scared me. So much that I had nightmares forever, for what seemed like forever anyway. And I've never seen it since. It's a movie that's out there a lot. It's I think it is um, public domain, so it's on all of those you know fifty horror movie DVD packs, those things, and it's on YouTube. And I know I own it. It's on one of my my horror DVD packs. But the, I started watching it once, but the print was so bad I turned it off. And also I started to get freaked out. Because even though I am now a grown man, allegedly, all of a sudden, just even the beginning of the movie was making me feel like a very, very frightened little boy. And without any further ado, let's creak open the nightmare closet. Well, it doesn't really matter if we're if we want to creak it open or not, because that damn nightmare closet opens by itself. Opens when it wants to. And it wants to right now. Beware. Beware. Something's about to come out. Out of the closet. The nightmare closet. <laughs> 
show the movie we're going to talk about because I realize right now that I never gave you the title. It's from 1974, and it's called Silent Night, Bloody Night. Once upon a time, there was a tiny little town, a little town on a bay. And once upon a time, this town was really something, but now, not so much. But once upon a time in this town, there lived a man, a very rich and powerful man, who built a grand and beautiful house suitable for a man of his station. But one night, on Christmas Eve, in fact, Christmas Eve 1935, something truly horrible happened in that house. Something so horrible that that man used all of his money and his power to make sure that that little town would someday forget the horrors that had happened there. And it worked. And the man left the house vowing never to return. Except on Christmas Eve, 1959, the man went back to that house and something horrible happened again. And ever since then, that house has been empty. And the town has forgotten the horrible things that happened there. But the problem with secrets is that they never really want to stay buried. And very often, they don't stay buried. Because the evil has returned and once again walks the halls of that once grand and beautiful house. And tonight, it's Christmas Eve once again. Let's listen to the trailer. It was the night before Christmas and all through the house not a creature was left living. His hands. Somebody cut off his hands. Silent Night, Bloody Night, starring Patrick O'Neill and Astrid Heron. Yeah, Butler wasn't kidding. Nobody's lived here for years. Don't laugh at me. I want your ID. Some maniac escaped from Margaretville. Would you like to drive there? Also starring John Carradine. Was the night before Christmas. And all through the house, not a creature was left living. Silent night, bloody night. So, Silent Night, Bloody Night, although it was filmed in 1972, did not get released until 1974, and that's kind of interesting, and there's reasons that I will get into later. But let's just talk about the cast before I start scaring myself again. Now, the movie has top build. Patrick O'Neill. Patrick O'Neill was a guy who was in everything. He has his lifetime movie career. Uh, he's a guy that often played heroes, but he also just looked like a villain, so he was always creepy. But um, he, for genre fans, he was most notably in The Stepford Wives and in the Larry Cohen movie The Stuff. But also in here is Mary Warnoff, who is one of these who, who I adore. You know, here's a woman who absolutely dedicated her life to exploitation films and was always excellent in them. And I adore her. I, she cannot do any wrong. I adore her. And if you don't know who she is, I can't possibly help you. John Carradine is in this as well. Everybody's favorite drunk of the time. I don't think he could make a horror movie in the 1970s without casting John Carradine. He must have had the most bizarre contract ever. And, and, and there you go. There you go. Some of the other casts I'll get into later, but I, I kind of want – do you hear the catch in my voice right now? Just – Talking about this movie, 
has given me a knot in the pit of my stomach. And it's really not because the movie is that scary now, but because it did turn me into that seven-year-old boy again who was petrified. There's something about movies of this era, particularly the cheap ones. And even though this cast uh, is is strong, I mean, Patrick O'Neill must have caused something. John Carradine probably did it for a, a bottle of vodka. But Mary Warnoff, she had her. She was a big Broadway star at the time. She was – I know uh, – I think at the time she was doing a play called Hurley Burley by David Rabe with um, – Charles Durning and also Madeline Kahn. And it was a big hit. So getting her was a big thing. And also she was one of Andy Warhol's people. So she was always working with them. So she was a cause salabra. Uh, the other woman they mentioned in the trailer, Astrid somebody, she was, a, I think, a model. She was a European model. I, I don't know much about her, but apparently this is the only movie she ever did. But she was fashion's it girl at the time this movie was filmed. So she probably didn't come cheap either. Yet the movie itself looks cheap. But for me, that adds to the sleaze of it. And for some reason, that makes things scary for me. Because you have to understand, I saw this on TV, on regular broadcast TV, because there was no cable TV at the time. And for some reason, a lot of times... These movies would be on in the afternoon on a Saturday or a Sunday, and they would show them virtually uncut. They might cut out the language or the nudity, but for some reason, the violence was always intact, and this movie is quite violent. And there are scenes in this that were burned into my memory so much that as I was watching it, I, 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 I was having cold sweats knowing that they were coming up. And sure, they may not be that scary now after, you know, 47 years of watching horror movies, but the memory of how scared I was as a kid was right back and so visceral. And you might not get that watching it. But as I say, at the beginning of every episode, you're going to have to see these movies through my gay little eyes. So I want you to understand what was going on for me. I think a lot of it is, too, that I saw so many of these bizarre, low-rent movies at such a young age, and I didn't really understand what was going on or why it was going on, and that made them that much more frightening. And often they weren't well made, so possibly the storytelling and the continuity wasn't up to snuff. But for as a kid, that made it even scarier because I understood it even less. And so the movie, the second this movie started, and this just creepy organ music and Mary Warnoff's voiceover, I was that little boy all over again. One last time, I have to see this ground. It's beautiful now, as if nothing had happened here. Soon they will tear down the main house, and then nothing will be left. Nothing. Except what I remember. I grew up in the town nearby, where my father was the mayor, and where this house stood waiting for me. It was built by Wilfred Butler. We had never seen him, and he never lived at home. Until the day before Christmas in 1950, he finally did come back for the last time. got worse the credits haven't even rolled yet now what you didn't see was that 
This shot was just of the outside of the house, and when she says that someone else had come home for Christmas, the door bursts open, and William Butner, Butner? Butler comes running out into the backyard, and oh, by the way, he's totally on fire, and he burns for what feels like eternity. And after he finally dies, we learn that in his will, he demands that the house remain exactly as he left it. And then he's leaving it to his grandson, Jeffrey. But as it turns out, Jeffrey doesn't really want it. And so the house has sat empty ever since. And like I've said, when the credits finally do start rolling, the pit in my stomach started to tingle even more, and not in a good way. Because the credits were all oldie-timey photos, and for some reason in these movies, especially they use these, you know, whenever this happens in one of these older movies that they start using oldie-timey photos, that brings up a whole bunch of anxiety in me as well, and I don't know why they scare me. And you get a little kid singing, and it's all bad. Like I said, the movie hasn't even started for real yet. For 20 years, that house lay empty, exactly as Wilfred left it. And then, last year, rumors began that it was finally being sold. The newspaper story traveled through the county to a state hospital for the criminally insane. So great news of the sale of the house has caused an inmate to break out of an asylum somewhere. Super. So now that I've let Mary Warnoff explain some of the plot to you, I can get into what's going on in the movie right now. Because oddly enough, she drops out for a good 40 minutes. She's out. Because, well, technically, she's not tub built. It's Patrick uh, Patrick O'Neill. It's Patrick O'Neill's movie. And he is the lawyer that has been hired to sell this awful house uh, by the guy who inherited it. The son of of, of the man who's dead. The, uh, is it Butler? I can't read my handwriting. Is it the Butler house? Yeah, Jeffrey Butler. And he's come to the town with his insanely hot girlfriend. I'm sorry, mistress, because we figure that out really quickly because he's on the phone with his wife telling him how hard he's working. I'm like, you bastard. And we're following him around. And this movie was shot on Long Island. And apparently the house is still standing and it's in Oyster Bay. And so I want to go out and see if I can find it someday and see how that makes me feel if I want to give myself a complete nervous breakdown. But that's neither here nor there. And it's not the point right now. No, sir. Because... Even though this is a Christmas movie, it doesn't give you a lot of the Christmas horror movie tropes. There's no killer in a Santa Claus outfit. No, no, no. It's an unseen killer. The story itself really doesn't have anything to do with Christmas except that this happens on Christmas and keeps happening on Christmas. And there is a distinct lack of cheer, which to the untrained eye might just say, oh, that's just really cheap production values. But I think it's intentional because this town is just dreadful. I mean, it's winter, but it's ugly winter. It's that awful dead gray sky. And everything in this town just looks bleh. You go into people's houses and they're just lame, like the saddest little Christmas displays and it's usually somebody by themselves like eating some like TV dinner on Christmas Eve so it's this really dismal view of Christmas in a dismal town and even when you're not in the butler house the source of all evil and scariness even when you're in a scene that shouldn't be weird it's weird 
in the scene that I'm about to talk about in which Patrick O'Neill is talking to the town council about selling them the house, he leaves his girlfriend outside to look at the pretty view of the bay, which ain't. But there are birds flying, and she's watching the birds. And the whole scene is underscored with this sound. And I'm guessing this is supposed to be the birds. And every time we come back to her, which is often, there's just this awful dentist drill noise that sets your teeth on edge. So even the scene that's supposed to be picturesque and beautiful, A, is bleak, ugly, gray, and depressing, but also has this sound that just ain't right. And this was working for me. It just added this layer of despair over the whole thing. Like, whatever happened in this house has poisoned everything about this town, even celebrating Christmas itself. But anyway, Patrick O'Neill is out to sell this house, and the first thing he has to do is go and meet the town council. And the second you lay eyes on them, it's these four older actors, and they look like if the Brothers Grimm were actually like Grimm people and they had two more siblings, so it was like the family Grimm. They're just miserable, unhappy, creepy-looking people. But he wants to give them the option to buy that house first because they've always wanted to, but up until now haven't been able to. I, I believe that you offered to buy the house for my client. Offered? We begged him. We wrote letters That's and we... That's enough, Tess. Well, it's true... Trouble. There's always trouble. I can sympathize. I spent the last 20 years and more driving people away from there. Prowlers, burglars, kids, they're the worst. Chasing for nothing because of that will. That dribble about humanity. No, no, no. Inhumanity. What the hell is that, huh? Yes, well, he was a bitter man. Hate? Must have been very hard. It must have been hate. That man hated. Well, some people are like that. So among them is the mayor of the town. And I believe that's Mary Warnock's father in the story. I forget exactly what the relationship is. There is the sheriff. There is the lady who is the telephone operator. And also John Carradine, who runs the local newspaper. And as you know, as I've already said, John Carradine at this point is a notorious drunk who could notoriously never remember his lines. And I'm wondering if it was a conscious choice, because if it is, it was a smart one, that to get around that, to get the billing power of John Carradine among the horror community and have him in your movie but not deal with his problems is to make him a mute. They gave him throat cancer so he can't talk. For the most part, he communicates with a bell. When he wants to, get, when he wants to make a point, he'll just slap a bell down. He just rings one of those front desk type bells. Or he scribbles with his little pad and paper. So anyway, the lawyer's pitching the deal to the town council and he gives them, okay, I can sell it to you for $50,000 if I can get the cash by tomorrow. And even though that's a steal for this enormous house, it's still a lot of money for these people to get at short notice, but they agree. However, they're very concerned that Patrick McNeil, Patrick McNeil is not taking up their offer to stay at their expense. The luxurious Paradise Motel in town. No, 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 no. He says, that's fine. We'll just spend the night at the house. I'll wait for your answer till tomorrow. You're spending the night here? Yes. May I ask where? At the butler house. We could put you up at the motel as our guest. No, no, the house is fine. The Paradise Motel. That's very kind of you, but I'm, I'm meeting Mr. Butler about some uh, personal items. You want a phone. I can reconnect the line. D don't trouble, please. No trouble. You need a phone. Don't want to be stuck out there. Well, you've uh, convinced me. Thank you. 
And that turns out to be a very, very bad idea. But I'm going to get back to that later. Because remember how I said that this movie was shot in 1972, but didn't come out until 1974? Why I found this interesting now as the modern version of me, super hard-educated scream queen, me, was that this movie was using a lot of tropes that we saw in later horror movies that are more connected with much more famous horror movies that came much later. As in, creepy point-of-view shots of the killer roaming the house. And something I'll get into later, he also makes very creepy, whispery phone calls. Another thing to make me shit my pants, but I realized if this was shot in 1972, they were doing both of those things before Black Christmas did in 1974. So when these movies were released at the same time, it must have looked like copycats of each other, but that's neither here nor there. Let's get back to the story. We follow Patrick McNeil back to the house and the girlfriend, and they're just, they're just gross. They're gross. It's fantastic, isn't it? Butler wasn't kidding. Nobody's lived here for years. That would be such a waste. It's his grandfather's monument. You know, there's a caretaker who keeps this place just the way he left it. What kind of monument is this? <laughs> well, that's the trouble. Nobody remembers anymore. They're gross, and you know that she. They have weird, sexy '70s conversations, and it's. It's not working for me. But unfortunately, there's some things to distract you because it becomes really evident really quickly that there is someone else in the house with them. Like I said, you're getting those creepy point-of-view shots and creaking floorboards while they're talking that they don't seem to notice. And when they go to bed for the night, that unseen person makes his presence known to them. He says hello in the most Christmassy way possible by viciously murdering the both of them in bed with an axe. This scene was indelibly burned into my head as a kid. And watching this, now I realized, huh, I told you in my first Friday the 13th episode that that movie fucked me up because I'd never seen anything like that before. That kind of violence. And I realized I had. And it fucked me up so bad that part of me blocked it out. Because by modern standards, the scene is nothing. But if you picture yourself seven years old watching this by yourself, you may get where, you're, where I'm coming from. Not knowing that this kind of violence was possible. And also, modern me realizes, oh, they just pulled a psycho twist on you. That we had that, the top bill person in the film. The person that we've been following for a good 45 minutes now. Whoop! Out of the movie. And this is when we get the first of many, many creepy phone calls. Who's our unseen person calling, Patrick? Well, he seems to be very interested in the town council because the rest of the movie involves him luring them back to the butler house one by one by one by one. And once they visit, they don't leave. Sheriff Mason. Uh, Bill, someone's calling from Butler House. Okay, put him on. Mr. Carter? Who is this? The honor. Butler. I'm worried, Sheriff. Carter's not here. Speak up, I can't hear you. What is it? What's wrong? His car is here, but he's gone. Won't you come? Okay, okay. Now you stay put in that house. I'll wait for you. Please, hurry. I, I'm afraid. No, 
Now take it easy. I'm coming. Okay. So, this was only the first half of the first phone call because it's oldie timeies. And, you know, sometimes, kids, back in the day, kids, sometimes to use the phone, you had to call an operator who would have to connect you to somebody. And sometimes that operator would have to stay on the line and you'd have to let the operator know that you were done with the call. So the operator has been listening to this call and she knows now that the sheriff has hung up, but the other party has not. That operator from the town council cuts in and asks, are you done? And if the first half of the phone call didn't scare me, the second half really did. Mr. Butler, are you done? What's that? Tess, I want to see you again. Hello? Who is this? You know me, Tess. It's Marianne. Tell the mayor. Tell them all. I'm waiting in my father's house. Tess, it's so lonesome The thing that scared me, too, as a kid, was the fact that this is a very distinctly male voice who claims to be Marianne. It's a man claiming to be a woman. This did not compute to me. And that scared me. And the other reason it scared me was that my babysitter was Marianne Luger. So for months afterwards, whenever she called the house, you know, when she was scheduled... You know, the day of when she was scheduled to come and see me and she was calling to check in with my parents and I picked up the phone. She said, hi, Patrick, it's Marianne. I would scream and hang up the phone. True story that I forgot until I rewatched this movie. So Marianne Luger, if you're out there and you're wondering what the hell that was all about, now you know. Now you know. I hope you will, Marianne Luger, because you were a damn fine babysitter. But that's not the point right now. Because the mayor goes back to the house. No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. The sheriff goes back to the house. But before he does, he sees somebody out in the graveyard, the town graveyard. Somebody's doing something at William Butler's grave. At, uh, at, yeah, Wilford Butler's grave. That was a bad idea, Sheriff. Meanwhile, we finally get back to Mary Warnoff, who's been hanging out in her house having the most dismal Christmas you could possibly imagine until somebody pulls up in front of the house and is sneaky pausing up to the door. Now, her being the mayor's daughter, she knows better. She knows what's going on in current events. She knows there's been a breakout in the asylum. She, got, she gets a gun out and she pulls the gun on a guy and she wants to see his ID before she does anything with him. And it turns out this guy whose name I don't have in front of me, was also a Broadway star and actually had just won a Tony for Best Actor. But he died of cancer while the film was in post-production. So all of his dialogue had to be dubbed by somebody else. And since his dialogue had to be dubbed, Mary Warnoff's had to be dubbed so they would match. So there's a weird disconnect because his voice doesn't match his face and their voices don't really match the movie and again that's something as a modern viewer I would be like that's really annoying but as a kid I was going something's wrong with them you know something I couldn't put my finger on as a kid but there was something wrong with them so even the people in the movie that I supposed to be the heroes or supposed to be the people that I feel safe with I didn't feel safe with and it turns out that this guy is Jeffrey Butler he's the guy who's selling the house he's there because he's supposed to meet the lawyer at the house and he's been calling and calling and calling and nobody answers I wonder why and he came to the mayor's office to see if he can get the key and she says he's not here right now maybe you should try the sheriff but of course the sheriff's not there as we've already established because well he met Marianne. And so now the two of them are starting to piece together that something is going very, very wrong on this very cold and very bleak and very 
desolately lonely Christmas Eve. And there's a lot of them running around back and forth that gets kind of boring. Their dialogue is kind of odd. They keep finding – like they, they find the, the sheriff's car abandoned. They find his broken sunglasses on Wilford Butler's grave. And so they know something's wrong, but they don't know what, and they're just trying to figure it all out. And meanwhile, she's like, oh, by the way, I've been getting phone calls all night from some woman who says she wants to meet you at the house. Hello. Is anybody there? Who is this? I'm Diane Adams. I spoke to you before. So Marianne's been very busy. Marianne's been running up the phone bill, much as a babysitter would. You know, they always are just yakking on the phone when they're supposed to be watching the kids. But that's neither here nor there. That's not the point. Get back to the story. I'm trying to tell the story. I don't like telling this story. I don't. I'm really not enjoying doing this. I'm scaring myself. And Smoochie's looking at me funny. One of the scenes is very weird. They're, 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 again, uh, they, they meet up with John Carradine at the house, at, the, at his, his, his newspaper office, and you know, they're trying to find everybody. And he's like, I don't know where anybody is. Why don't you check with the phone operator, whose name I don't have in front of me, so I'm ruining everything. And I'm like, okay, well, we'll stop at her house. For the, we'll make, they, and they said, well, we went over there, and they said that she went to the house too because she's been getting phone calls, aside from the one that she eavesdropped on. But John Carradine is hitting his little bell saying that she would never go to the house because she hates that house. So they stop off at the operator's home. And it's never really addressed, but her living room is filled with about 20 bird cages with what feels like 50 birds just chirping and squawking and chirping and squawking and there's no room it's so claustrophobic and strange we're going what the fuck is wrong with this woman why is nobody addressing this well tess isn't here are you satisfied she must have gone to my place why wouldn't she go there She hates it. Maybe she went to see the woman who's there. How fucking weird. This movie doesn't give you a break from the weird. Okay, as a modern viewer, you might get kind of bored. But for me, I'm just going, everything, every place they go, every person they meet is so fucking unrelentlessly weird. And yeah, this town council is getting picked off one by one by one, but there's something not right about them. Why are they so interested in this house? Why is that operator so – why does she hate that house? What connection do they have to this awful, awful, evil house? I'm not telling you because even though this movie is – 25 years no I'm sorry 45 years old at this point it's readily available everywhere you know on your shitty DVDs or on YouTube and even though it's not a good print it's watchable and I forget they somebody just put out um, I'm going to say Scream Factory I'm just going to assume it's Scream Factory because they do great work somebody put out a restoration that it's supposed to be pristine which fixes a lot of the problems with it which probably wouldn't work for me because it's the, the grittiness and griminess and the straining your eyes to see in the dark part of it. That brings me back to my childhood. So I'm not sure if the DVD print would work for me, but that's neither here nor there. Because, well, I was going to cut to the end. But when I talk about these movies from my childhood, I often say that even though I don't remember them that well, like uh, when I did brotherhood of satan way back in the day another movie that wrecked me that i 
could not bring myself to watch until I did it for the show. Often, yeah, okay, the axe murder scene, that I knew was coming, and that was very indelibly printed in my brain. But as the movie's going along, there'd be moments where I would just hear a little warning bell start to tinkle in the back of my head, saying, Patrick, turn it off. Turn it off. And that meant that something that scared me when I was seven was coming. And there are several, but the one I want to talk about right now is when our bird-loving telephone operator is reunited with Marianne. That fucking whisper. Yeah, I'd already heard it, but all of a sudden I remembered this conversation. And you don't have the visual. The woman had walked into the house and it's pitch black. And something makes her fall in the dark. And while she's lying on the floor, suddenly she's got a flashlight in her face. So you can just see her face. That's it. Just blackness and this old woman's face. Terrified, crying face. And she can't see. She's blinded by that flashlight. And even though you don't see what happens to her, I was remembering the scene as it happened. And I have to admit, I started to cry a little bit. That little boy was extremely present. Mary Warnoff and Jeff Butler, they get into that house and there is a showdown. Mary Warnoff has been left for a while. John Carradine's newspaper office while he's running around with the old man looking for people. And she starts doing research on the house and the house's history and we learn things. Except we don't learn everything because it turns out pages and pages and pages of history uh, of, 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 the, of the records that have been torn out, blacked out, or just plain missing. In August 1933, it starts. Wilfred Butler's daughter is cruelly attacked and raped. Her name is Mary Ann. The same name as the caller who left those messages tonight. She's 15 then. On May 2nd, 1934, Mary Ann Butler gives birth to a son, Jeffrey Butler. Jeff. Early in 1935, Butler House is turned over to a Dr. Robinson as an asylum for mental patients. And then Butler goes on to say that he has committed his own daughter. Mary Ann will live at the asylum. There's no end to this story. It's been carefully cut out of all the papers. Why would Toman do that? And there is a showdown, finally. But the key date that Mary Warnoff gets out of the newspaper is that something happened on December 24th, 1935. Well, what had happened previously was that after the death of his wife... Wilford Butler's beloved daughter, Marianne, was attacked and raped by an intruder. And that little girl went mad. 
and to help her. Wilford Butler converted that house into an asylum. He hired a whole bunch of doctors and brought them in to help his daughter and also opened it up for other patients as well. But everything shut down after what happened on December 24th, 1935. But she can't find any information about what the fuck went down that night. I'm not going to tell you. But I will tell you that it's horrifying. And the fact that, again, all of this went out on TV. And the fact that it's shot oldie-timey style. Not quite silent movie, but it looks scenes of it. Looked like they were shot by, you know, Matthew Brady, like the earliest form of, of photography. Like, you, you, you can't make out faces, just shuffling horrible forms. And, and it's <laughs> clearly for me, it was very disturbing. It might do nothing for you, but at the end of the day, the truth is revealed about what happened in 1935 and what really happened in 1959. And we, and we realize and we learn who has been murdering the members of the town council and why, and why they were so interested in that awful, awful, damned house. And by the time Christmas Day rolls around, only Mary Warnoff is left alive. Which is not a spoiler because she's the narrator of the movie. And she says at the beginning of the movie that she's going back to that house for the first time, which you already heard. Okay, so we already know that she's alive. She survived. And even though it's cheap, even though it's sloppy, even though it's hard to watch, I found it incredibly effective. Would I feel the same way had it not damaged me to the core as a youth? I don't know. Will it have the same effect on you? I don't know. But I think it's worth your checking out if you haven't seen it already. And if you have seen it already and didn't think it was that great, maybe try watching it. And put yourself in my shoes. Not my shoes now. My little teeny tiny Buster Browns that I was probably running around in when I was seven years old alone on a Saturday afternoon while my family was downstairs thinking everything was fine upstairs with me when it in fact wasn't I think it's time for me to close the door on the nightmare closet for this time I hope you've enjoyed yourself I hope you've enjoyed my suffering <laughs> It was worth it for me, you know, because like I said, I don't, as you well know, I don't scare easy anymore. And to be able to revisit this kind of primal fear, even though it's horrible and unpleasant, it's still kind of neat to see that that kid's still in there and that a movie that most people don't think nothing of can have this kind of effect anyway. So, my beautiful patrons, I wish you all the best for this holiday season, no matter what you're celebrating or what you're not celebrating. If you don't do anything this holiday season, I still hope it's a great time for you. I'm going to see if maybe I can set up a screening for this before the holidays are done. And you know what? The little boy just piped up in my head and said, I don't want to see it again. But I do it for you. So keep an eye on the Facebook feed and also on the Patreon feed. If I do decide to do it, you guys will be the first to know. And I'll try to give you more notice than I've done in the past. But we'll see what we can do. So with that, thank you again for being a part of Scream Queens in a way that all those other people aren't. For being the movers, the shakers, and the influences that shape how this show goes from here on out. Thank you for sticking through all the Patreon pay fee 
Mishigash. And thank you for just looking so fabulous. Look how you dressed up to listen to me today. You didn't have to do that. You didn't. Have, I appreciate it because, man, you look great. You look great. So until next year, my beautiful patrons, keep it creepy. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, there's a little sample of what you're missing by not being a patron to the show. Now, if you're interested in supporting the show in this way, what you need to do is head on over to www.patreon.com slash Scream Queens. And of course, that's Queens with a Z. And there's all kinds of information there, all the different levels you can subscribe to and what you get all the fun perks you get, and I keep adding stuff all the time, and it's been an adventure, so I hope you'll join me there for more fun things like this, because the Nightmare Closet is only going to happen over there, as is the crapshoot, and why the fuck isn't this on DVD? They're not happening here anymore. I just don't have the time to fit them into the show anymore, except for very, very special occasions, so if you like those segments, you better get your ass over there, baby! Yeah! So I hope you enjoyed this little bit of Christmas in the middle of August, because I don't know about where you are and how it is where you are. It is hot as balls here in New York. And I'm reminded why I like to take some sort of hiatus over the summer. Because let me just tell you, as I'm sitting here with my little headphones on and no air conditioning on, just the few minutes I've been talking to you, the earwells on my headphones have completely filled up with my own sweat. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I know that when I take them off, I will douse myself with, you know, a half a cup of my own sweat that has been slowly pooling up over the last half hour or so. And is that turning you on? Ew, what's the matter with you? Call me. No, just kidding. Whatever. I don't know. I don't know. But it's just too damn hot to podcast right now. But I'm doing it for you, babies, because I love you. So, what else can you be listening to during this period to help ease the pain of not having full, fresh episodes of Scream Queens in your ears every two weeks? I only have one podcast recommendation for you right now. And it's a good one. And you might be surprised that I'm recommending it at all because you're probably thinking, gee, Patrick, this podcast sounds like it would be in direct competition to yours. But you know what? There is no competition in podcasting. And this show is such fucking high quality that I can't recommend it enough. It's a relatively new show and they have the balls to do something I wish I could do here, but I can't handle what they do oh my god what do they do patrick oh it's incredible it's so fucking hot man i just can't stop spanking every time they're in my ear holes no i'm just kidding no 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 the show i'm talking about is a relatively new podcast called fry gay the 13th not friday the 13th Friday the 13th and it's hosted by maddie and andrew two fabulous gay friends out of Chicago, and their twist on the LGBT horror genre is that they manage to merge real-life horror with movie horror. They take the topics of the day, which, as we all know of late, is a non-stop horror show, and manage to find movies with those themes that reflect those themes and have a whole long, intelligent discussion that's funny and witty and endearing and insightful and aggravating in a good way you know what i mean it'll get you all riled up and want to go out and protest and shit and it's exactly what i wish i could do but baby i'm too old for that now i can't even face the news for the most part but maddie and andrew do a fantastic job an incredibly entertaining show it's always jam-packed full of information they review a bunch of movies at a time and there's a theme every month and i think you will love them and i'm so happy about what they do that I have invited them both to join me for this year's Halloween fundraiser countdown to Halloween marathon thing, whatever the hell I call it. You know what I mean? That thing where I drive myself crazy for two weeks to raise money for new alternatives for homeless LGBT teenagers. 
go on over there and subscribe to them. Don't even just check them out. Just subscribe. I mean, li- I mean, listen to the show as well, but subscribe your ass to that show, girl. Do it now. Daddy has spoken. Even though Daddy's gotten in that really high voice and is spiking really hard on the monitor, and I'm sorry for yelling at you. I didn't mean to. It's just that I'm so passionate about the boys over at Friday the 13th that I can't control myself. (laughs) And Daddy made it creepy. And Daddy needs to stop calling himself Daddy like that because that's even more creepy. Okay, one last thing before we go. I just want to say there's a change in contact information. Yes, you. if you want to leave me a voicemail, you can still do so at 917-720-2047. However, our official email is defunct until all this website problem gets resolved. So if you're planning on writing me at crew at screamqueens.com, don't bother. It will just go boom and bounce. So the place to reach me now is screamqueens06, the numeral zero, the numeral six, at, gmail dot com, at gmail.com. That's screamqueens06 at gmail.com. And as always, that's queens with a Z. And of course, you can find me on Facebook at screamqueens where horror gets gay. You can find me on Twitter at Scream Queens. I'm on Instagram at Scream Queens Podcast. And of course, at Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Scream Queens. Is that everything? I think that's everything. So I'll see everybody in two weeks. Uh, I'll be having another sneaky peeky type thing, maybe a repeat episode or something from the vaults. And keep it cool, baby, because it's really hot out there. And of course, continue to make the world a creepier place and never, ever, ever forget the Scream Queen's golden rule. And that's going for me too. I'm telling myself this as well during these tough times. Fight or flight. Survive the night, baby. Make it through the final reel. Mama. Some of the music for tonight's program has been provided by Mavio's Music Service. Check them out at music.mavio.com, bitches. <laughs>